0: This is my whole life, my legacy. I'm, I'm, I'm part of history. So if you're gonna try to destroy all of that, I'm saying no, you tell me why I should serve one inning. Because you're retiring next year? That's not fair, Mike. No, hey, listen, You had, you know, the whole time, and you're saying on the record, you did nothing wrong. You're telling the audience now, all your fans here, you did not do what they're accusing you of doing. That's correct, Mike. Well, the
1: thing so about lying, about? or at least being caught in a lie, is that people might understand They might even forgive you, but it's really hard to get them to trust you again, especially about the same subject. That was true for Alex Rodriguez, and it was true for the game of baseball. In January of 2013, when the Miami New Times first broke the story of Biogenesis of America, a lab that had supplied steroids to over a dozen professional baseball players, including, most prominently, A-Rod, the obvious reactions for fans was, here we go again. The Biogenesis story really did have all the trappings of prior steroid scandals. Like Balco before it, Biogenesis was a phony lab led by a shady character with dubious medical credentials. Once again, there was a big star at the center, this time it was Alex, not Barry Bonds, who was surrounded by fringe baseball players, less famous athletes from other sports, and a bunch of weird quasi-criminal characters. So even though the league had spent the years between the Mitchell Report and Biogenesis selling the story that steroids were a thing of the past in baseball, even propping up A-Rod's redemption arc in 2009, fans weren't going to be fooled this time. We had been trained to be cynical about this stuff. The steroid era, it seemed, had never really ended.
2: Luckily for the league, at least, they had developed a strategy for dealing with steroids. Blame the players. Treat anyone linked to steroids as a cheater, and insist any personal accomplishments are therefore invalid. If possible, try to run them out of the league completely. That strategy had already been hammered home the same month the biogenesis story first broke. That January, for only the eighth time in its history, the Baseball Writers Association of America did not elect a single player to the Hall of Fame Keeping both Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens out in their first years on the ballot. Barry Bonds was arguably the best hitter of all time. And Clemens has a case as the greatest pitcher ever as well, but baseball wouldn't even let them in the Hall of Fame because of their connections to performance-enhancing drugs. So when the Biogenesis story broke, the league's reaction was obvious. They were going to punish the players. Never mind that their testing system had completely missed those responsible, and never mind that steroids still seemed to be a part of the game. That wasn't baseball's problem. The problem was just that there were a few more players who needed suspensions. That would do it. As for Arod, rod he would spend all of 2013 denying any connection to the biogenesis scandal. But nobody believed him. How could they? I mean, would you? He'd already lied about it once, and it would eventually be confirmed to federal investigators he was lying once again. I'm John, I'm James,
1: we're the Lefty Specialists,
2: and this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter 8, Fool Me Twice.
1: Between the Mitchell Report in 2007 and the Biogenesis story in 2013, baseball had done a decent job, at least on the surface, of putting the steroid scandal behind it. A number of users had been exposed, and the league now had stiff penalties in place for players who failed drug tests. As we talked about in Chapter 7, that was why so many people had been so invested in Alex Rodriguez's redemption narrative in 2009. The idea that the truth had come out and that this exposure had itself been healing, allowing him to vanquish the personal demons that had troubled him all his career and finally carry his team to a World Series title, that personal story seemed to mirror the idea that Major League Baseball had vanquished its own demons. That simply by exposing guys like Alex and other steroid users, the league had fixed itself by finding and punishing, either through public scorn or legal jeopardy, the people who were really at fault, the players. Even as the redemption narrative around A-Rod himself began to fade due to age and injury and the declining performance we talked about in chapter 7, he was just another in a long list of bad guys that baseball could point to and say, Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. If A-Rod had thought his redemption was permanent, he was about to learn via the Biogenesis scandal that as soon as it was convenient, the league would throw him under the bus yet again. At every opportunity in this stretch, they would deflect blame away from the owners and executives by putting it on the players. The other thing that happened was that home runs started to go down. We mentioned in chapter 6 how, between the onset of the steroid era in the mid-90s and the release of the Mitchell Report in 2007, there were 23 50 home run seasons. That was more such seasons over a 13 year span than baseball had had in its previous 120 year history. But in the five seasons between 2008 and 2012, there was only one 50-homer season. And the league's home run rate did fall significantly. In the 2010 season, it was below two per game for the first time since the ball had been changed back in 1993. That year, 2010, was known as the year of the pitcher because it seemed like the balance of power had finally shifted away from hitters. That season, there were six no-hitters thrown, including two perfect games, plus an almost perfect game from Armando Galarraga. And 15 pitchers reached 200 strikeouts.
2: Sidebar, are we still acting like that wasn't a perfect game?
1: It doesn't. It's, it's not on the list of official perfect games if you look at Wikipedia.
2: It's the 27th out. The game's over. Whatever. Is, yeah, oh, look, he got it. screwed.
1: It's totally unfair.
2: Well, in any case, the obvious explanation was baseball's new testing regime. Practically every analysis of the year of the pitcher phenomenon attributed it primarily to the testing system and the increased penalties for performance enhancing drugs. The league could toot its own horn for finally addressing the steroid issue, seemingly successfully. Before I turn to the Mitchell Report, it is important to recall the progress we have made. Baseball now has the strongest drug testing program in professional sports. Our penalty structure is the toughest. We have year-round unannounced testing, including testing on game days, both before and after games. We use the Olympic Certified Laboratories in Montreal and UCLA for our testing, and the day-to-day administration has been delegated to an independent program administrator. But did this testing system actually work? Well, it really depends on what you mean by work. Certainly, a number of players were caught... 28 suspensions were issued in the first seven years of testing. But if the goal was actually to reduce the prevalence of steroids in baseball, then we really have no way of knowing whether that happened. After all, there was never a serious effort by baseball to assess how big the problem had been, so there was no way of knowing if it was getting better or worse. The Mitchell Report, supposedly the definitive assessment of the problem, had concluded that steroid use was, quote, widespread. But that could mean almost anything, and the report is maddeningly imprecise on that front, which really shows just how dumb the report is in the first place. It includes estimates that range from 20 to 30 to as much as 50%, but it's not clear where those estimates come from except vibes. The report itself names 83 players as steroid users. That's not a representative sample, and it covers a vague time span. It's not even clear which of those players used steadily throughout their career, which used off and on, which may have tried it only once or for a small period of time.
1: Yeah, the closest baseball ever really got to a comprehensive account of how prevalent steroids were was that 2003 round of survey testing, the supposedly anonymous test that included A-Rod's first failed test, or really only failed test, because that was, as we said, anonymous. So there, you know players were presumably not taking efforts to, to hide their their use. And in that, between 5 and 7% of the tests came up positive, much, much lower than the estimates included in the report, and certainly stretching the definition of the word widespread. It's like saying left-handedness or green eyes or widespread. Testing in the minor leagues was similar, although it had a wider range in various years, going from as high as 9% to less than 1% in 2006.
2: And this is before we even really get into the kind of Changing definition of PEDs. You know, at, at right. one point in the decade, the league cracked down on amphetamines, but you know before that, they weren't really thought about. So
1: yeah, what counts as a failed test also changes in this period of time. So it's really hard to to be be precise. Some people like to claim that tests were unreliable and that they could easily be beaten, which is probably true. But there were a lot of prominent names that failed tests in 2003. Guys who would have presumably had the resources and incentives to beat the test if it were so easy to do that. So it's hard to imagine that there was some massive population of steroid users eluding capture. And if you throw out the test completely, then you really have no basis for the claims that PEDs were ever widespread, even if you do stretch the meaning of that word. But because so many players with steroid connections never tested positive, people use the test as evidence of guilt, but never innocence. As Alex Rodriguez would soon find out, if a player failed a test, that could be held against him forever. But a player passing a test didn't do him any good. Everyone knew how easy the tests were to beat, supposedly. If you actually looked at who did fail tests, though, it presented a very different image of steroid use than the public seemed to imagine. There weren't a lot of all-stars or big home-run guys failing tests other than Rafael Palmeiro and Manny Ramirez. But the system was catching a lot of fringe players, utility men and relief pitchers. It was also catching a lot of foreign-born players. The 35 suspensions issued between 2005 and 2012, 26 of them were issued to players born outside the U.S., even though less than a third of the league is international. In other words, the system seemed really good at catching players who lived outside the FDA's jurisdiction and may have taken substances that weren't tightly regulated or even legal in their home country. But it didn't seem especially effective at rooting out corrupt sluggers, even though that's still how everyone pictured steroid users.
2: All this suggested
1: some contradictions
2: lurking beneath baseball's new steroid regime. But to fans who just wanted to keep cheaters out of the game and to the week, which just wanted to end the embarrassment that had accompanied exposure of the quote unquote steroid era, it all seemed to be working. It even seemed to be working for players who mostly did not want cheating in the game and were content with blaming guys who broke the rules. After all, as Arod's example showed in our last chapter, the system even potentially held out the promise of redemption to players who at least feigned contrition and promised to be better. The first guy to ruin that picture was Ryan Braun, star outfielder for the Milwaukee Brewers. Braun won the National League MVP in 2011, but he also tested positive for PEDs. His test actually revealed the highest testosterone levels ever recorded by baseball's testing regime. But because of the timeline of the appeals process, the failed test wasn't made public until after MVP voting. So there was this embarrassing moment where he failed the drug test in October, was named MVP in November, despite the league office knowing he had an impending failed drug test. And then the report came out weeks later in December. Then to make matters worse, Braun went on the offensive. By then there was a standard playbook for how to handle a failed test if you were a player apologize, claim you took the steroids inadvertently, if possible, try to claim you didn't take it with the New York Yankees, (laughs) then accept the suspension and move on. But Braun didn't do that. He challenged the validity of the test result, even going after the guy who handled his sample, implying that he was a Cubs fan or anti-Semitic or otherwise had some vendetta against Braun that caused him to taint the sample. And it turned out that the guy had mishandled Braun's sample. Rather than immediately shipping bronze urine to the testing facility, the guy in charge of collecting it took it home for a couple of days, saying the FedEx facility had already closed and he didn't want the sample waiting in a FedEx box all weekend. The MLB said he did nothing wrong, saying, quote, the extremely experienced collector acted in a professional and appropriate manner. He handled Mr. Bronze sample consistent with instructions issued by our jointly retained collection agency, end quote but an arbitrator reeled that that did violate the testing agreement. So he threw out Braun's test and overturned the suspension. Discerning listeners will maybe pick up on the fact that if this protocol violated the testing agreement, then it's possible that all tests collected in this period violated the testing agreement, but that's neither here nor there. I have always stood up for what is right. Today's about everybody who's ever been wrongly accused. And everybody
0: who's ever had to stand up for what is actually right. Today is not just about me. It's not just about one player. It's about all players. It's about all current players, all future players, and everybody who plays the game of baseball.
2: Ryan Braun is a rich kid from the Valley in LA. Uh, so, and a, a rich Jewish kid from the Valley in LA, as a matter of fact, which is maybe the most litigious kind of person there is. <laughs> so, he brazenly held a press conference after all of this, claiming vindication, which was kind of funny because everyone knew he won on a technicality. There was no evidence that Braun's sample was actually tampered with, and there was no scientific explanation that would cause the testosterone levels he had to spike so high.
0: I will continue to take the high road because that's who I am, and that's the way that I've lived my life. We won because the truth is on my side. The truth is always relevant, and at the end of the day, the truth prevailed. I'm a victim of a process that completely broke down and failed in the way that it was applied to me in this case. We're a part of a process where you're 100%
2: guilty until proven innocent. It's opposite of the American judicial system. This is not an innocent until proven guilty situation. But the whole thing was so absurd and embarrassing that some people started to question baseball's whole testing regime. The writer Charles Pierce in Grantland summed it up at the time writing, Ryan Braun had to give baseball some urine, and the baseball official test with handling Ryan Braun's urine kept Ryan Braun's urine in his freezer for 44 hours, which is a long time to keep someone else's urine to my way of thinking.
1: The Major League Baseball was gonna hold whoever's urine they wanted for however long they wanted, and they weren't gonna let anyone tell them otherwise. It was super important to the league that they not let any doubts fester about whether their drug testing program was appropriate or moral or even effective. First, they fired the arbitrator who ruled in Braun's favor. Then they sent their own Department of Investigations, an inept group of retired cops and investigators who were supposed to uncover steroid use and never actually seemed to do that. Uh, And they were supposed to find the source of Braun's PEDs because it wasn't just Braun. In 2012, there was an uptick in failed tests, seven in total, including Melky Cabrera, who had just made the All-Star Game. Many of these players had ties to Miami, as did Braun, who attended the University of Miami. And it would turn out that a number of them were tied to Tony Bosch, who ran an anti-aging clinic in Florida called Biogenesis, where he mostly treated middle-aged guys worried about gaining weight and losing virility.
0: And that's where I basically decided I wanted to get into the anti-aging business. Florida was known for Pas de Leon and the Fountain of Youth. It was a perfect place for the anti-aging movement. Florida became the anti-aging capital of the world cause of the laws in the anti-aging industry. There was no laws. The anti-aging clinics had exploded in numbers by the time I got here in 2011. And basically you'd have doctors or people who pretended to be doctors given all types of medical advice Um, And in many times, writing prescriptions. There's almost no regulations so anyone can open one of these clinics, even someone as (laughs) unqualified as Tony Bosch.
1: Tony Bosch, by the way, was the nephew of Orlando Bosch, the Cuban émigré who worked with the CIA and started an anti-Castro terrorist group that, among other things, assassinated Orlando Letelier, the former member of Allende's government in Chile who opposed the Pinochet dictatorship. Bosch's group also blew up Cubana Fight 455, killing 73 people. But Bosch, but Orlando Bosch was later granted a visa to the U.S. by George H.W. Bush, who, wink wink, was also the head of the CIA when Bosch's terrorist group was the most active. This has nothing really to do with our story. It's just to say that you honestly cannot throw a baseball in Miami without hitting somebody who once worked for the CIA.
2: And it does make you think, you know, uh, Tony Bosch making his career out of selling steroids to children and other dupes in South Florida. It's one of the more moral choices he could have made coming from that family background.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Tony Bosch is really sort of a hero for what he did not do. And as mentioned before, Tony Bosch really brings to mind Victor Conte, the guy who ran Balco, the lab Barry Bonds was connected to in 2003. Like Conte and Balco, Bosch and Biogenesis had a fancy, scientific-sounding name, but underneath it was really just smoke and mirrors Although he was from a family of doctors and called himself a biochemist, Tony Bosch had almost no medical training. He never got a college degree and flunked out of a medical program in the Dominican Republic. After a short career in the 90s as a medical supply salesman, he got a degree in biochemistry from the Central America Health Sciences University in Belize. And even though such a degree isn't actually recognized in the U.S., he started calling himself Dr. Bosch when he set up biogenesis. Like all great con men, Bosch was a great bullshitter. He knew how to sound like he knew what he was talking about. You can see this in Screwball, the documentary about the biogenesis scandal in which Bosch is a main character. He's kind of charming. In an ESPN story from this month, September of 2023, there's a quote from someone about Bosch saying, quote, When Bosch would speak about medical stuff and the science, you would think he was going to win a Nobel Prize or whatever. The guy was super articulate, knew what he was talking about. And if you didn't know he wasn't a doctor, you would be convinced that he was. He was very well-educated on this whole thing. But he wasn't well-educated. He just knew how to talk like it. And because of this, and because of the story about steroids that baseball had been telling for years, that they were an evil way for those bad players to put up fraudulent numbers, as opposed to an act of desperation mostly sought by players on the fringe and guys recovering from injury. And even the league and the media liked to repeat things about Bosch that made him seem like some kind of evil genius, when what he really was was just some two-bit hustler. Yeah, when people talk about Bosch
2: and biogenesis, it sometimes sounds like they're advertising for him. They talk about Tony Bosch's wonder drugs that, quote, rejuvenated careers and, quote, turn seasons around. Otherwise, responsible journalists would play fast and loose with the facts. For example, citing Bosch's few success stories, but ignoring the fact that most of his patients saw no bump in production. In fact, roughly half of the players eventually suspended due to the Biogenesis investigation were not even on a major league roster when the story came out. Even now, in this month's series over at ESPN, they use the same framing to an extent that borders on dishonest. For example, they write about the year Ryan Braun tested positive. Quote, Braun would put up an MVP season that year hitting 332 with 33 homers and 111 RBIs. he so impressed team management that the Brewers extended his contract 5 years during the season," end quote. That wording clearly implies that his tarnished MVP season led to his contract extension. Except that the contract extension was announced on April 21st of that year, just 17 days into the 2011 season. It wasn't motivated by the MVP season. of which took place after the deal was signed. But acknowledging that would mean acknowledging that Braun was already a great player before he ever got treatment from Tony Bosch. His MVP was just a highly talented perennial all-star having a career year in his age 27 season. That doesn't require some nefarious chemical explanation. Believe it or not, Tony Bosch had not actually figured out how to prevent aging at his anti-aging clinic. That doesn't mean the players connected to him were innocent, just that we shouldn't be so quick to believe the hype around what Tony Bosch's drugs could do. But one guy who did seem to believe the hype was our hero, Alex Rodriguez. You might remember from chapter seven that during this time, around 2010 and 2011, Arod rod was struggling to recapture his power. The most visible sign of this was his long wait to hit his 600th career home run in, during the summer of 2010. Whenever he did it, he would be the youngest guy in baseball history to reach that mark. But it seemed to be taking forever, and the wait was agonizing until... The
0: 2-0. High drive, center field, deep, going back Wells. Look- 100. Alex Rodriguez, the youngest man ever to get to 600 home runs. And now, one of just seven big league ball players in the history of the game to hit that many home runs. 600 is a two run shot and a 2 0 Yankee lead. Well, the milestone that became a millstone is now officially a milestone. 600 home runs, and he finally does it. He breaks his 0 for 17 slide, and that monkey is off his back. Congratulations indeed. Number 600 is his.
1: Whew. This had happened before. a had been stuck on 499 home runs for a while too, and it seems indicative of the way Alex could get it stuck in his head when all the attention was on him. But this time, it was also indicative of his fading power. The day before he hit home run number 600, his slugging percentage was only 467, nearly 70 points lower than his previous career low. In order to address this, a few days before his 600th home run, Alex had met with Tony Bosch for the first time. a was introduced to Bosch through, who else? His cousin, Yuri Sukart, the same cousin who got roped into Alex's previous steroid scandal. Sukart. Had started seeing Bosch the previous year for, for weight loss treatments and had supposedly given Alex one of the testosterone gummies that Bosch made for his clients. When he heard that Bosch had treated Manny Ramirez, who'd had his own late career turnaround, Arod became intrigued. Supposedly, the first words out of his mouth upon meeting Bosch were, What was Manny Ramirez on in 2008 and 2009? What were you giving Manny Ramirez?
2: Yeah, that's the story that people mention a lot because, I mean, it is kind of like a vivid picture, but. It's worth pointing out that the only source for that story is Tony Bosch himself. And now might be a good time to point out that the source for a lot of the details of the biogenesis investigation is Bosch himself. And maybe it's a good idea to be a little skeptical of that. This is a convicted criminal who sold steroids to children, who was dealing with multiple substance abuse issues at the time himself. He was also a famously good liar and bullshit artist. So maybe we should take some of the colorful details he offered with several large grains of salt.
1: Yeah, Bosch's credibility, or lack thereof, would become a major part of Alex's defense. But we know from notebooks Bosch kept, and text messages between them, and the testimony of other witnesses, that Alex saw Bosch from that summer in 2010 through the end of the 2012 season. First through cousin Yuri as an intermediary, and then directly. Bosch treated him with testosterone, HGH, and a version of peptide therapy which uses amino acids to stimulate production of testosterone. Or at least that's what he said he was giving them. In the recent ESPN report on biogenesis that comes largely from DEA notes on their investigation into Tony Bosch, it's revealed that most of his drugs came from the black market, making it hard to know exactly what he was giving his quote-unquote patients. As Kevin Stanfill, the guy overseeing the DEA's investigation would eventually say, Quote, they were actually mixing stuff up in kitchen sinks and in bathtubs. So who knows what was really involved. Certainly, Bosch was giving Alex something, but it's hard to be sure exactly what it was, and I certainly wouldn't buy whatever Bosch was selling. Whatever it was, though, know, Rodriguez did see a short mini burst of power in the weeks after he started seeing Bosch. He hit nine home runs in September of 2010, nearly twice as many as any other month of that season, getting to 30 for the year and boosting his slugging percentage back over 500. But the overall trend of decline did not stop. Bosch wasn't some brilliant scientist who had discovered the fountain of youth. He was just an opportunist who was willing to prey on A Rod's desperation. The years Alex was treated by Bosch were the worst seasons of his career, as we documented in the last episode. Years later, Rodriguez would speculate to a reporter that Bosch must have given him placebos because of the lack of any effect. But the truth was that Bosch could never do the things he claimed he could do things that a credulous media repeated and which the league's enforcement regime used as the basis for its suspensions. Mosh's drugs were good if you were a middle-aged guy trying to shed your gut and stay in shape, but they couldn't make you hit home runs or repair a torn labrum or heal your meniscus. Posh couldn't turn back the sands of time, so he couldn't fix what was wrong with A-Rod. Fans often wonder whether Alex's steroid use caused his injuries, and it's a fair question. There's still a lot we don't know about how steroids affect athletes' bodies, But most doctors seem to think, no, that's unlikely, given the nature of his injuries and what he was taking. But it seems quite clear that the injuries played a big role in him turning to steroids in the first place. His body was failing, and he was desperate for some magic fix, even if that meant risking the reputation he was trying to get back. I've often wondered, as I think a lot of fans have, why he would squander the reputation he had won back in 2009 postseason by taking steroids just a couple of months later. But I think the injuries, coupled with the way steroids had been talked up as this magic fix, sort of helps it make sense to me. James, does it make sense to you? Well, you're kind of accepting the premise there that A-Rod actually
2: did stop using steroids after 2003. And I'm not sure that's a totally fair assumption. Fair I mean, point. we know reporting that went into Bloodsport, the book about biogenesis, that he had a therapeutic use exemption for testosterone in 2007. So, who knows if he ever stopped using PEDs. It probably was desperation that drove him to bosch, but it might have just that might have just been him changing up to this regimen or routine so maybe I don't know in this years maybe he goes back to being a little loosey goosey with it, but I'm not sure he was ever strict about being a rule follower yeah, that's probably probably correct, whatever the reason when the Miami New Times first published their report on january twenty second two thousand thirteen Alex's name was front and center in the story. Also, shout out to the Miami New Times, which is a small paper, uh, a, a small weekly paper in Miami that really punches above its weight. Yeah, I believe um, at this he,
1: point they had like three full-time staff members and were still breaking huge stories.
2: Yeah, they did really good work on this. They uh, did a lot of work on the Epstein case, although I you know, don't want to misattribute the Miami Herald, which broke the main story, but, um, they also reported a lot on the abuse allegations around rapper Exacos Tentacion, as well as the, like, sort of shady investigation into his death. Uh, just, you know, I found myself reading a lot of Miami New Times, uh, over the years, and I guess this is just a plug for local journalism. I'm not really sure. <laughs> yes, yeah, important print media, man. Miami New Times. <laughs> After the New Times published their outstandingly reported report and the league opened an in- investigation, Rodriguez issued a full throated denial, insisting he was never treated by Bosch for anything. His team put out a categorical denial statement. Quote, The news report about a purported relationship between Alex Rodriguez and Anthony Bosch is not true. He was not Mr. Bosch's patient. He was never treated by him, and he was never advised by him. The purported documents referenced in the story, at least as they relate to Alex Rodriguez, are not legitimate, end quote. Every line of that statement was a lie.
1: (laughs) It is really remarkable how
2: virtually nothing in that is true. (laughs) At this point, Alex focused on recovering from hip surgery. As you might remember, he had torn his labrum again at the end of two thousand twelve, an injury that went undiagnosed throughout the postseason. So even before this latest steroid scandal came out, Alex's future was in doubt.
0: I don't I don't get into speculation. I can only do what I what I can control and uh and I'm gonna take care of that. You have um, no trade clause in your contract. Would you waive that for any teams <clears throat> or any cities? I haven't thought about that. I love New York City. I plan to be here and uh, I plan to come back and, and be productive for this team for, for a while. I, I've never thought about
2: going to another team. My, my focus is to stay here. Let's make that very, very clear. There was some concern that the surgery this time would do more harm than good, threatening his ability to walk even. A physical therapist who worked with A-Rod after the 2009 surgery supposedly begged Alex's doctor a guy named Brian Kelly, not to perform the surgery. He would be out until at least June, and when he came back, he would be nearly 38, coming off his second hip surgery in five years. And the Yankees were clearly worried about what kind of player they would be getting back. For most of 2013, the team acted like they just wished A-Rod would go away.
1: Yeah, the 2013 season was a weird year for the Yankees, both on and off the field. Not only was A-Rod out, but Derek Jeter had broken his ankle in the previous year's ALCS, so he would only play in 17 games that season. Then Mark Teixeira hurt his wrist in the World Baseball Classic, so he would only play in 15 games. That meant almost the whole Yankee infield, guys who were collectively making around $60 million that season, was hurt. Curtis Granderson also missed half the year, and CeCe Sabathia had the worst season of his career. Yankees were trying to make it work with an excellent season from Robinson Cano, and then patching the rest together from guys like Lyle Overbay, Eduardo Nunez, Vernon Wells, and Zoilo Almonte, who I only include because I love the name Zoilo Almonte. And they were remarkably hanging in there somehow. Plus, it was Mariano Rivera's last season, so they weren't going to give up completely. In late June, after Alex had missed three months, and while the Yankees were two and a half games back in the American League East, Brian Cashman, the team general manager, told the press that Alex was getting closer, but still a long way away from the field. Then, the very next day, Alex went on Twitter and Instagram announcing that he'd met with Dr. Kelly, who had cleared him to start playing in baseball games, at which point Cashman told him to, and I'm quoting directly here, shut the fuck up. Rodriguez acknowledged that he hadn't informed the team of his medical situation and simply rushed the announcement because he was so excited. Cashman, for his part, apologized for his use of foul language, and things seemed to be progressing. Except, a couple of weeks later, the Yankees announced that, while playing a rehab game in the minors, Alex had strained his quad, which would shut him down for at least a week, further delaying his return. By then, the Yankees had fallen to fourth in the division and were two games back in the wild card. But then, a couple days later, Alex asked a different doctor to call WFAN and tell Mike Francesa that he didn't think there was a strain. Although that doctor did not actually treat Rodriguez, the Yankees then filed a grievance against Alex for seeking a second opinion without notifying them. Clearly, the relationship between the two sides is breaking down. Arod seemed to suspect that the Yankees were deliberately keeping him off the field until the biogenesis investigation was finished. Some reports had the league considering a lifetime ban for Alex, which, importantly, would have freed the team from its financial commitment to Arod. Understandably, Alex started to suspect that the Yankees were rooting for this outcome and even working with the league to ensure it.
2: A-Rod is now at the center. Sources tell ESPN Major League Baseball now believes it has enough evidence of alleged doping by the star to impose a lifetime ban.
0: If they do, they know they're going to get an incredible fight with the union, and that's something that baseball is trying to avoid.
2: One of the revelatory news drops that would come out in 2013 around the biogenesis investigation stuff was when A-Rod's emails with Yankees team president Randy Levine became public. Levine, who leads the business operation of the Yankees, apparently maintained a casual and friendly correspondence with A-Rod over the years. Over 2011 and 2012, Levine intermittently reached out to express concern over A-Rod's a- health when he wasn't hitting and would give his approval after certain moments of success. In these texts, Levine calls A-Rod the leader and cites the need for the other Yankees to follow him and believe in him. These exchanges between the two of them, they're a weird mix of like advice and chumminess and banter plus awkward jokes And it all certainly takes on a weird tone when you remember Levine is A-Rod's boss. Most notably, on July 30th, 2012, Levine sent A-Rod a message that a slumping Robinson Cano, quote, needs some steroids fast. On August 21st, he said, hey, what's up with Robbie? This guy must not be using the liquid.
1: Yeah, since Cano eventually did fail multiple tests for PEDs, this looks pretty incriminating for Levine, like he knew Robinson Cano was on drugs. But I don't really think that's what's happening. For one, Levine has no incentive to know these things. Bosses usually try to claim plausible deniability and look the other way about stuff like this. But more importantly, this is just how people around baseball talk about steroids, even now. Oh, he's hitting well. He must be on the juice. Oh, he's slumping, giving some steroids. Everyone just takes it as a given that steroids make you a better hitter, even though, again, no real evidence of that.
2: Yeah, it could just be one of the many bad jokes in these emails that Levine makes that Alex basically has to reply LOL back to. Um, these emails, I cannot emphasize like, how awkward they are. They read like texts, you know. The, Levine is clearly like one of these boomers who doesn't really know the difference between text or email or the etiquette for either. In any case, by 2013, Levine's messages turned in tone they became very cold and formal. At this point, Alex keeps accusing him and the team of conspiring against him. And Levine keeps saying, there's nothing I can do. Our hands are tied. It's the league, talk to your lawyer. But Arod seemed convinced that Levine and the Yankees were using the league's investigation as a pretext to get out of paying him for the five years left on his contract. If this seems paranoid, remember that this was happening while the MLB investigation was unfolding largely in public with strategic leaks to the press. And it was immediately clear that the league's goal was not to solve any structural problem. They weren't going to try to shut down legally sketchy clinics like Bosch had been running, or look into their testing procedure to see how so many players supposedly on drugs had passed drug tests. No, baseball's goal wasn't to fix any of that. They just wanted to punish the players who had gotten away with anything. And that meant getting a run the most famous name in the bunch. And Alex realized that if they did get him, and if they gave him the punishment that some people were floating, that lifetime ban from the sport, then the Yankees would be let off the hook for the five years and roughly $130 million still on his deal. Levine didn't have to be personally involved for the league to be protecting the interests of the ownership class. Major League Baseball's investigation into biogenesis was always a farce, involving bribed witnesses, bogus lawsuits, extramarital affairs, and stolen evidence. If you're interested in all the absurd details of that case, we'd encourage you to read Bloodsport or check out the documentary Screwball, directed by Billy Corbin, both of which are excellent and go into it at great length. And we actually know even more about it now because of the reporting ESPN put out just this month on the nature of baseball's investigation. The big reveal there was the extent of the money the league paid to Bosch for his testimony. Previously, the league had admitted only paying for Bosch's security, suggesting that they needed to protect him from any goons Arod had hired. But according to DEA files reviewed by ESPN, nearly $2 million for quote-unquote security really went to Bosch's friends who had no security training and was really a way of the league Quote, Fueling a lavish lifestyle of high end hotel stays and rent for million dollar condos. Bosch partied at bars and strip clubs on MLB's dime. End quote. They also covered, among other things, his overdue child support and robust cocaine habit.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to point out that both Screwball, the documentary, and Bloodsport, the book we've mentioned, they both play up the supposed threats to Bosch's life, which Arod's team allegedly made, necessitating the millions of dollars in security payments to Bosch. But it's clear from this new report that the DEA never took this seriously. Arod hadn't hired any mafia hitmen to come attack Bosch. The quote-unquote security payments were just legally laundered bribes to Bosch to sort of finance his lifestyle, which is what Alex actually alleged throughout his defense. These documents also undermine the bullshit idea that the league cared about player safety, because rather than work with the DEA or the Florida Department of Health to shut down Bosch's clinic, they interfered with the investigation by filing their lawsuit against Bosch, offering him money to ensure his testimony. And even though Bosch did eventually spend time in prison, the league worked to get him a more lenient sentence because of his cooperation with them. At one point in the arbitration hearing, one of Arod's lawyers asked Rob Manfred, the head of enforcement for MLB and eventually the league's commissioner, how they could work with a steroid dealer who sold illegal drugs to high schoolers. And Manfred just said, honestly, whether or not Mr. Basha distributed drugs to minors was not of paramount significance to me, end quote.
2: But all of this secured Basha's expert medical testimony, which allowed (laughs) the league to bring the hammer down on Alex and over a dozen other players who had been treated by him.
1: As it would happen, the suspensions would be announced on August 5th. The same day that Alex was slated to come off the injured list. Sort of like how, you know, the last Peanuts cartoon was published the day after Charles Schultz died. The the announcement for Major League Baseball came early in the day, with a dozen players getting 50-game suspensions, the amount for a first offense against the league's steroid rules, and then Ryan Braun got 65 games because of the grievance he had filed in 2011. All 13 players, including Braun, who had fought the charges so vociferously the year before, accepted their suspensions with apologies. But the headline was Alex, who got a 211-game suspension. To that point, the longest ever handed down for a steroid offense, and we believe the longest suspension ever issued to an active player since the Black Sox scandal in the 1920s. But a was also the only player on the list who appealed his suspension, meaning that it wouldn't take effect until after an arbitration hearing, which itself wouldn't take place until after the season. So that night, with the Yankees playing the White Sox in Chicago, they penciled into the lineup at cleanup for the first time all year, Alex Rodriguez. Alex Rodriguez about to take his first at bat of the season. So why don't you listen to the reception so he'll number get from New York? The third baseman,
2: number 13, Alex Rodriguez.
1: Certainly not a warm greeting from the crowd here in Chicago, and I guess what would you expect? He singled in that at bat, going 1-4 for four overall, but the Yankees lost 8-1. to one. actually got swept in Chicago, falling to just one game over 500 and seven games back of the last wildcard spot. Then the team returned to New York, and even there, the crowd reaction was... Let's go with mixed.
2: Top for the Yankees, batting fifth in the order.
0: For third baseman, number 13, Alex... Rodriguez. Come on, second, two outs. So what do you think, Kenny?
2: 50-50? 60-40? Yeah, you know, it sounded 50-50 to me. Yeah. But, the, the
0: 50 but the
1: Yankees different... needed Alex. As mentioned, the team had injuries up and down the lineup all year in 2013. But the lack of production from third base was particularly notable. They had only four home runs from that position prior to Rodriguez's return to the lineup. And within a couple of days, Alex and the team actually started to turn it around. Starting on August 11th, A-Rod hit in six straight games, beginning a period where the Yankees won 10 out of 12, pulling themselves to within three and a half of a playoff spot. This was a wild stretch for the team, which included a three-game series at Fenway Park against the first-place Red Sox, where, on a nationally televised game on ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball, Boston starter Ryan Dempster decided to take the league's disciplinary process into his own hands. His first pitch was 89 miles per hour aimed right at Alex's knees, and he actually missed, and the ball sailed behind Arod, But the crowd applauded Dempster for the effort. Pitches 2 and 3 were inside, not exactly close to hitting Alex, but clearly trying to brush him back. And then finally, on the last pitch with the count 3-0, and Dempster threw up and in at Alex, hitting him on the shoulder, but not missing his head by much. Warnings were issued to both sides, but Dempster was not thrown out of the game, which made Joe Girardi, the Yankee manager, irate. He stormed the field, screamed at the ump, and got thrown out of the game. The incident actually sparked a rally that put the Yankees ahead three to two, but it was a really wild game. Later, A. Rod came up with with the Yankees trailing six to three, and he had a home run that sparked a come from behind win for New York. It was a pretty emotional game for Alex and the whole team.
0: Joe said that that should have been handled differently. The first pitch behind you should have been a warning, and then when you got hit, he should have been tossed. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I agree. I agree. That was. You know, whether you like me or hate me, that's just what's wrong, wrong and that was unprofessional and silly and uh, kind of a silly way to get somebody hurt on your team as well. Considering, you know, how many players have been spoken out about you playing through your suspension, are you concerned about this moving forward? I'm um, not at all. You know, we, um, that today kind of brought us together. Joe's reaction was amazing. Uh, every single one of my teammates came up to me and said, you know, hit a bomb and walk it off and they were more pit- as pissed as I was. Oh, that's just not right. Do you think he should be
1: suspended? Who? Uh, Ryan. I'm the wrong guy to be asking about suspension. <laughs> Holy macro.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I got an attorney I can recommend.
2: It's pretty. It's a pretty good bit for the league to just make throwing at Alex Rodriguez legal.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get. Look, I get why Dempster did what he did, but it was. I, I also get why Girardi was. Like, it was so obvious what he was doing. He doesn't even get thrown out of the game. Come on.
2: Yeah. For the Yankees, the shot in the arm. Maybe we shouldn't use that phrase. Artificial boost, invigorating injection. (laughs) The unique cocktail of ingredients. The blend of of force that Alex provided lasted only about a month. On September 12th, after 33 games, Rodriguez was slashing 294-391-504. His best one-month stretch since his knee injury two years earlier. Even better, the Yankees had pulled within just one game of playoff position. But that was as close as the Zolo Monte Yankees would get. In fact, the team kind of collapsed in the final two weeks. It started with yet another injury to Alex's lower half. There was a hamstring issue in Baltimore that relegated him to just being a DH for the rest of the year. Then he added a calf tweak a couple days later in Fenway Park. And while he stayed in the lineup, Alex only went 3-for-37 over the last two weeks of the season, seeing his overall numbers plummet. His batting average fell by 50 points, his on-base percentage by 43, and his slugging fell by a full 80 points in just 11 games. And this decline was felt throughout the lineup. The Yankees had averaged 5.6 runs per game in the first month after A-Rod came back, but that number fell to below 3 per game after his leg injuries. Starting with the series in Boston, the Yankees lost nine of 12 games and ended the season six and a half games back of the second wild card, almost exactly where they had been when Rodriguez was first activated in August, missing the playoffs completely for the for the first time since 2008. But even after the Yankees were eliminated, all eyes were on a rod, since his arbitration was scheduled to start just a day after the regular season ended. Alex expected this arbitration to vindicate him, to be the forum for him to finally tell his side of the story. And he really came out guns blazing. A few days after the hearing began, he filed a lawsuit against Major League Baseball, accusing them of, quote, tortious interference, tortious is in tort law, but if you ask me, it was also torturous. (laughs) (laughs) For paying for evidence against him in the steroid case, it, and it was true, they did do that. And as well as bullying witnesses, also true, they did that as well. The next day, Rodriguez sued the Yankee team doctor, Christopher Ahmad for failing to diagnose his hip injury properly the previous October. Remember, that was the postseason where Alex was pinch hit four multiple times and ultimately benched because he looked so helpless and broken at the plate. Turns out he really was broken. <laughs> In addition to this legal strategy, Rodriguez also tried to win over the public. That fall, he took a meeting with the documentarian Billy Corbin in Miami, where he supposedly pitched the director on making a documentary about his unjust persecution. Corbin would make a documentary about the case, but uh, the, the aforementioned screwball, but it was not flattering to A-Rod. A-Rod also... Astroturfed an organization called Hispanics Across America to organize a protest in his defense outside the arbitration hearing. Corbin would lampoon the fact that all of the signs the Hispanics Across America held up seemed to be written in the same handwriting.
1: Yeah, that protest became, became sort of a running joke with people there not even really understanding. Like they'd clearly been paid to be there and they didn't even know what they were doing there. In the actual arbitration hearing, though, Alex's defense centered on how unprofessional baseball's investigation had been, highlighting Bosch's lack of credibility and the tainted nature of the evidence against him, pointing out that both the testimony of Bosch and the documents obtained had been bought and paid for. He also made a big deal out of an affair that the league's head of investigations had with one of the witnesses and tried to insist that Bud Selig was out to prove he was tough on steroids before retiring, to atone for presiding over the steroid era in the first place. And there was some truth to what he was saying. But Rodriguez did not seem to realize until it was too late just how uphill his battle would be. He had already been caught lying about this. How could anyone believe him now? Arod would get no presumption of innocence, so it didn't matter that Major League Baseball had failed to meet that burden of proof. After all, they were the ones who decided what proof was enough. People often both sides the Biogenesis case, pointing out that Arod and the league both paid for evidence, they both sent money to Bosch, and they both lied about their behavior. And that's all true, but it ignores the fundamental imbalance of power here between labor and capital. Rodriguez wasn't the one issuing suspensions. The commissioner was serving as the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury in this process. And even though a was guilty, the investigation was more about protecting the league's image than protecting the players or protecting the rules. By making Alex's misconduct the focus of the story, baseball had managed to distract from the way biogenesis poked holes in the narrative that baseball had been telling, that they had moved on from the steroid era. The testing system worked, even though it failed to catch most of the players treated by Bosch. Steroids were out of the game, even though one broke hustler with no medical degree operating out of a strip mall in Miami was apparently treating over a dozen major leaguers. The league cared about player safety, even though they were actively impeding government efforts to prosecute a steroid dealer in order to procure his testimony against players. By blaming the players, baseball could ignore all those contradictions and insist that one more suspension, one more punishment, that would be the thing that finally fixed everything. The final straw for A-Rod came in mid-November as the hearing was winding down. Alex and his team were insisting that Bud Selig had to testify. After all, the suspension, the 211 game total, that had been Selig's decision, and it seemed like a reasonable request that Rodriguez be able to face his accuser. But on November 20th, the independent arbitrator, Frederick Horowitz, ruled that Seelig did not have to testify. He didn't even have to attend the hearings. After that, Arod threw a fit, kicking over a briefcase, stormed out of the hearing, and headed all the way over to the WFAN studio where he sat for an extended 40-minute radio interview with Mike Francesa. Man, A-Rod loves sports talk radio. Yeah, and he specifically loves Mike Francesa. So in that, we he and I have a lot in common. <laughs> it
2: is true. Early on in the interview, Mike Francesa comments how frequently... Yeah,
1: he's like, you're A-Rod always YouTube. here. He's like, you're here all the time. <laughs> Through the interview, he insisted on his innocence, demanded the right to confront Selig, and said the whole process was a sham, and he'd given up hope that he would ever be treated fairly.
0: You know, it's been difficult. But, uh, you know, respecting the process, having been offered to, to come in a million shows, haven't done anything. It's just been really just taking it one day at a time and respecting the process. And today I just, I lost my mind. I banged the table and kicked <laughs> a briefcase and slammed out of the room and, and just felt like this system, I, I knew it was restricted and I, I knew uh, it wasn't fair. But what we saw today is just, uh, it was disgusting. And the fact that uh, the man from Milwaukee that uh, put the suspension on me with, with not one, bit of evidence, something I didn't do, and he doesn't have the courage to come look at me in the eye and tell me this is why I did 211. I shouldn't serve one inning. And this guy should come to to our city. I know he doesn't like New York. I love this city. I love being a Yankee. My daughters grew up in New York. And for this guy, the embarrassment that he's put me and my family through, and he doesn't have the courage to come see me and tell me This is why I'm going to destroy your career. So you blew up when the arbitrator, Horowitz, made the ruling, the commissioner is not coming. That's when you exploded. Uh, uh, So you got the definitive word that he was not coming to this process, right? I I exploded uh, much worse than Paul O'Neill on any of his explosions with the coolers. I I was very upset. I, I probably overreacted, but that's just, it came from the heart. and. This has been a very
2: difficult process. Mike, if I may, Alex, Alex did not overreact in the slightest. There is no legal forum in the United States where a man does not get to face his accusers.
0: Well, this is not a legal forum, though. This is, right, this is, we know that. There's no rules here, right?
2: Yeah, that interview, it's very funny as a mix of both, like, live reaction awkward moments micro francesa seeming to give earnest personal advice to a Rod, but then then seeming to like accidentally touch on some
1: hard questions it's a pretty great interview it's really like a rod at his most raw um he's also there with a lawyer who who sort of gives weird seemingly ill-advised legal advice in in the interview and yeah i think francesa gets a lot of heat for this interview because he and it is, he, he doesn't do a great job. He doesn't really even ask Alex directly like about his relationship with Bosch, until 35 minutes into a 40 minute interview. But it's also hard to blame him. Like Alex just shows up and then like on a random weekday and it's clear like Francesca doesn't even have notes or any prep work done for the interview. So like, what's he supposed to do?
2: Yeah, the funniest part is if you watch the video version of the interview and like you see them both just sitting there while the intro music to the Mike Francesca show plays and they're just like, sitting, like, with totally blank expressions before they, like, hop into this interview where A-Rod gets really emotional. Yeah. And it just shows, like, yeah, like, they're always camera-ready and, like, I don't know, they're always playing the audience. Yeah, yeah. By the time the interview took place, it was clear that A-Rod had given up any hope in the process. So there's no surprise that when Horowitz issued his ruling the following January, it was incredibly damning of Rodriguez. Horowitz wrote that, quote, This proceeding clearly and convincingly establishes Rodriguez committed multiple violations of the joint drug agreement and the basic agreement warranting a substantial disciplinary penalty. It found that he had committed at least two instances of obstructing the investigation and found that Major League Baseball was well within its right to issue the original suspension. Horowitz did reduce the suspension from 211 games to 162, but even Then he was careful not to say it was because the case was weak or the suspension undeserved, only that the original suspension had not extended beyond the 2014 season, so there was no reason to do so now. The decision represented a complete and utter failure for Alex Rodriguez. Rather than being vindicated by the process, A-Rod was only further humiliated. He issued a statement, once again blaming the outcome on an unfair process. Quote, The number of games sadly comes as no surprise, as the deck has been stacked against me from day one. This is one man's decision that was not put before a fair and impartial jury, does not involve me having failed a single drug test, is at odds with the facts, and is inconsistent with the terms of the joint drug agreement and the basic agreement, and relies on testimony and documents that would never have been allowed in any court in the United States because they are false and wholly unreliable. You know... The man raises a few points there, by the way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, we we made the joke about how every line in that initial denial was a lie. Here, like, everything he says in that statement is true. Like, it's true that there was no fair and impartial jury. There were no failed drug tests. Like, it isn't inconsi- like, he's, he's not wrong about this.
2: And despite all this, Alex still thought he could clear his name if he just tried a little harder. Just a couple of days after the arbitrator's decision was handed down, Alex filed more lawsuits, this time against not just the league itself, but also the MLB Players Association. That's right. Alex Rodriguez sued his own union over their handling of the Biogenesis case. This, for a socialist pro-worker podcast like this one, is truly unforgivable.
1: Yeah, this is where A-Rod loses even us.
2: Now I gotta turn my back.
1: The Players Association's position in the whole A-rod versus baseball thing was always a little bit awkward. After all, the process that Rodriguez is railing against, the one he was calling a sham and a show trial and all that, that was the process that the union had agreed to as part of the collective bargaining agreement. In that Mike Varances interview we were just talking about, he asks Alex a couple of different times, how could you guys agree to a process that is so unfair? And Alex keeps saying he hopes they change it in the next negotiation. But that illustrates the tricky position that the steroid issue put the union in. Ever since the issue first broke into the mainstream, people had accused the Players Association of being soft on steroids because they opposed testing and harsh punishment for the players. So by 2013, they also wanted the issue behind them almost as much as the league did. They certainly didn't want to be seen as giving up something in negotiations in terms of salaries or revenues that might go to all players to protect people accused of cheating. After all, most players in the union were opposed to steroid use and wanted harsh punishments for players who got caught. So even though the union had a responsibility to protect the rights of members like AROG, it couldn't go along with Rodriguez's insistence that the whole process was corrupt. This is why it's so important to see the steroid issue as a labor issue because it was, in effect, an important cudgel that owners had been able to use against the union, to divide players and put the union on the defensive, and eventually to issue suspensions and fines that clawed back victories gained by the sport's athletes. Even for fans who understandably do not like cheaters and don't want drugs in the sport, the rights of an athlete, even one who might be annoying or selfish or even guilty, ought to be protected.
2: Michael Weiner, the then head of the Players Association, had tried to thread this needle, but he had stood by the process despite Alex's criticisms. The union never charged Selig with any kind of abuse of power, and while it respected and stood by a right to appeal, it was clear they mostly just wanted the whole thing to go away. But most offensive to Rodriguez was an interview Weiner did back in August when the suspensions were handed down. He told Chris, the mad dog, Russo, that there was a deal he had pushed for regarding Alex's suspension, which was never offered. He said, quote, there was a number that I gave a and we advised him to take it. He was never given that number, end quote. When Russo asked whether that would be an admission of guilt, Weiner said, quote, it's a question of evidence. And, you know, each player has to make his own decision as to whether he used or not. Based on the evidence that we saw, we made a recommendation, end quote. This certainly suggested publicly that there was real evidence against Alex, which he was denying at that point. It also, when combined with other statements Wiener made about the process, suggested that Rodriguez was likely guilty. So Rodriguez, in his new lawsuit, accused the union of violating its duty to defend him. He also highlighted that the union made no efforts to stop all the leaks from Major League Baseball's office, which violated the confidentiality that was supposed to be assured by the joint drug agreement and the basic agreement, that the union signed on to. Whatever the merits of his case, though, the backlash to the lawsuit was swift. Wiener was a well-respected figure around the league, and uh, making him even more sympathetic was the fact that he had passed away from a brain tumor at the age of 51 just three months earlier. So at this point, A-Rod was effectively suing a dead person. Also, again, you really can't sue your own union. (laughs) That's not solidarity. Players around the league were justifiably furious, and a few wanted to kick Alex out of the MLBPA. There was no real mechanism for doing that, but the anger around the league was real. As one anonymous player told Jeff Passan of Yahoo, when he gets up to bat, you can hit him and hit him hard. That's what I'd do. He sued us. Johnny Peralta and Nelson Cruz screwed up. You know what? They owned up to it. They took their medicine. He needs to be scared out of coming back and facing people he sued. If he can't fear the wrath of getting kicked out or not being included, he's going to be forced out.
1: And then, just three weeks later, Rodriguez dropped the lawsuits against both the league and the union. He did it quietly, only acknowledging it publicly when the league itself put out a statement. We're not in his head, so we can't know what exactly changed Alex's mind, but we now know this that on January 29th, 2014, he was interviewed by the DEA, where he finally admitted what everyone else had already concluded. He had been treated by Tony Bosch. He had knowingly taken illegal substances, and he had tried to cover it up by lying about it and paying people off. He even named other players that Bosch claimed to have treated like a real snitch. This interview wouldn't become public until much later, but now there was a record of Alex admitting the truth and about a week after that, he dropped his lawsuits. A Rod himself did not talk to reporters, nor did anyone from his team, except to acknowledge that the lawsuits were dropped. The lawsuit against the Yankee doctor, Chris Ahmad, that was still technically in place, but that would be dropped the, la- the following June. He didn't admit to any wrongdoing at the time, but Alex seemed to finally recognize that he had lost. He was ready, as they say, to take his medicine, but there was still the question of whether he would actually heal.
2: Chapter 8 of the A-Rod Chronicles brings us through 2013, uh, at which point Alex Rodriguez had tallied 654 career home runs, 115.7 wins above replacement, according to baseball reference. It was actually the same as after 2012, because in 2013 he was exactly replacement level as a player. He also, most significantly, had secured the record-setting PED suspension earning 162 games after the arbitration hearing was finally settled.
1: The A-Rod Chronicles is an Undrafted Productions from Us, the Lefty Specialist, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists. You can see more at undrafted.substack.com. Music by Lonnie Ginsberg. Thanks for listening.